Greetings, my spooky friends. As always, thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those tunes that you just heard is, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And as always, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. My mind is like a prison field. Sun don't never shine. Got a life since and I'm doing all the time. Today we venture on over to Moundsville, West Virginia, home to the West Virginia Penitentiary, located within a Gothic-style building. Gotta love those Gothic-style buildings for sure. Now, back in the day, Governor Arthur Borman, he repeatedly lobbied the new West Virginia legislature for a state pen. But guess what? He was denied every single time. And it's not like he was requesting a brothel armed to the teeth with feisty prostitutes, ladies of the night, soiled doves, shady ladies, whatever you refer to them as. But no, this was something that was desperately needed. Due to the rejections and with no state penitentiary in sight, there, 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 yeah, no, no, not over there, no, nowhere. The inmates were shuffled around and dispersed to surrounding county jails or sent to nearby states. But guess what? Virginia was still pretty pissed off and having a pretty rough time about the separation and refused to help West Virginia's problems in any shape or form. No, not happening, sweetheart. The year of 1865 proved to be an incredibly bad one. Nine inmates managed to successfully escape in nearby Wheeling. Enough is enough. The West Virginia legislature cannot continue to turn a blind eye about what is happening here. Finally, the state legislature agrees that a state penitentiary is a must. Too bad it took something like a massive escape for this to actually get approved. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the unfortunate situation when an individual man or woman is being stalked and is terrified for their lives, but nothing can legally happen until something bad happens. Not good. Not good at all. During the months of 1866, the summer months that is, a wooden prison, it's built. This would just be a temporary thing as plans were still being made to construct a more permanent prison. For the penitentiary that you see today, local quarried sandstone was used and it was built by the inmates. It was a long process, very long. But finally, those doors, they opened to the West Virginia Penitentiary in 1876. Housing, at the time, 251 prisoners. And like many institutes like this, they were pretty self-sufficient. Here you could find a chapel, a hospital, several different types of workshops, a bakery. We had the wash house there, a school, a library, 
They even had their very own baseball team. <laughs> yes. Inmates, they worked at the wagon shop, the brickyard, as blacksmiths and tailors and much more. The main building was divided into four different sections. The North Hall was known as the Alamo. The Alamo was for <coughs> solitary confinement. <laughs> New Wall was for the general pop. And Rat Row was reserved for inmates who testified against other inmates. And Rat Row was for their protection. Then we have Honor Roll, which, I don't know, the name, just like Rat Row, kind of speaks for itself. This was where the inmates who actually behaved themselves and just wanted to do their time and, you know, not cause any commotion. This is where they were and they would be rewarded for their good behavior. Steam heat is introduced to the facility not too long after opening their doors. And electricity is not too far behind after that, beginning in 1900. Now, in 1929, we see major overcrowding, a problem that we see in most institutions like this. In fact, I believe every prison episode I've done, which is a lot because I love them. I love the history behind them and what have you. But it seems like every single one has had overcrowding issues. Like stinky sardines in the tiniest of tins, my friends. Three men, they would be confined in a tiny 5 by 7 cell. Yikes. No such thing as personal space over here at West Virginia Penitentiary. It didn't take long for the pen to be ranked as one of the top 10 most violent correctional facilities in the United States. And this did not come from some magazine or newspaper, but straight from the Department of Justice themselves. Ouch, that's tough. By the time they closed their doors in 1995, so not too terribly long ago, there were 653 prisoners and 32 guards. And oftentimes, when there's overcrowding, it usually goes hand in hand with one or two different things. Any guesses? Huh, yeah, that's right. Riots and escapes. Well, guess what? Riots, escapes, executions, and good old hauntings, you're going to hear about all of those right now. Here's an interesting fact for you guys. Charles Manson did his time in California, as we all know, but the place he desired to be if he had to be locked up was at the West Virginia Penitentiary. In fact, he had requested to be transferred there so he could be closer to his family, so they could be able to go visit him if they'd like. Yeah, okay, we'll jump right on that, Chuck. Thankfully, he was denied this request. Why give the man anything that he wants? And he remained in California until his death in 2017. Three years after opening in 1979, 15 inmates successfully escaped, each doing time for serious offenses. One of the most dangerous inmates involved in the massive escape had to be Ronald Williams. He was serving a sentence at West Virginia Penitentiary for the murder of Sergeant David Lilly. Not only did Ronald manage to successfully escape, but he also was able to retrieve one of the prison guard's service weapons, and while he is on the run, comes face-to-face -face with a West Virginia state trooper who 
is off duty at the time of this unfortunate meet, Trooper Philip Kesner doesn't stand a chance and is shot and killed with a stolen service weapon. Ronald Williams, he's a stone-cold killer. He's already killed one lawman. Why would he care about the life of another law enforcement officer? Trooper Kesner, he was only 23 years old at the time of his murder. He was driving past the prison with his wife when he saw the escapees. Okay, it doesn't matter if you're on duty or not. If you are in law enforcement, if you see something happening, and if you're off the clock, if you're not on duty, you're not going to turn a blind eye. Well, some may, and if they do, they shouldn't be in law enforcement. But Kesner, he knew he had to intervene. This was serious shit. So he tries to stop this escape from happening, but instead he is yanked out of his vehicle and brutally murdered in front of his terrified wife's eyes. So incredibly sad. Williams was unfortunately a free man for over a year and a half. God, that just kills me. During his time out from the West Virginia pen, the trooper would not be the only person to die by Ronald's hands. No. This now double murderer manages to murder John Buncheck in Scottsdale, Arizona while conducting a robbery. He was also involved in a shootout with federal agents in New York City. Sadly, Ronald Williams, hmm, he's still alive, my friends, to this very day. Too bad he wasn't executed long ago when West Virginia was still conducting executions. Damn it. But sadly, the last execution that took place in West Virginia was in 1959. That of Elmer Bruner, who you're going to hear more about in just a short while. Riots, another cringeworthy topic when it comes to prisons. It's January 1st of 1986. Due to the holiday and the issues with being short-staffed, some of the inmates thought it would be an appropriate time to start a riot. Why not, right? At 5.30 p.m., 20 men who are part of a gang known as the Avengers... They ambush the mess hall and attack several people. Their targets, five officers and Captain Glassick, and a food worker. They're all gathered together and cuffed with the guard's own handcuffs. The riot, it would last for two days. And besides the seven individuals in the mess hall, the Avengers would also collect even more hostages during the two long, grueling days. Thankfully, none of the hostages are badly injured. I mean, maybe some scrapes here, scratches, bruising from being thrown around during the initial attack, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Much worse. Meanwhile, guess what? The inmates, they didn't fare so well. By the end of the riot, three of their own would be dead. The riot most likely started due to extremely poor conditions in the penitentiary. Toilets, they were constantly just clogging up, not working. Overcrowding, as we know, it was obviously a huge major concern and severe inconvenience for those who were housed here. The prison was often invaded by bugs, so 
It is after the riot that the governor sets a new list of rules for the prison. And that very same year, that being 1986, the Supreme Court in West Virginia agrees that a 5 by 7 cell containment for several men, well, that's unusual and cruel punishment. And that things need to change immediately. And as the years go on, many inmates there transferred to other prisons. And by 1995, West Virginia Penitentiary had around 650 inmates. The law is that thou shalt return to the place whence thou camest, and from thence to a place of execution, where thou shalt hang by the neck till the body be dead, and the Lord have mercy upon thy soul. Public executions took place here at West Virginia Penitentiary via hanging. Mm, that was until one fateful day when the botched execution of Frank Hire takes place. Frankie boy, he was a notorious wife beater. He really didn't go out of his way to hide this whatsoever. In fact, it was pretty public knowledge that he would often raise a hand or aim a fist towards his wife. Many people have witnessed him abusing Ava. He had beat the living crap out of her in the past, but one mid-December day back in 1930, with Christmas being less than a week away, mind you, things, they escalate very, very quickly between man and wife. Hmm, scratch that. More appropriate abuser and victim. They are at Frank's restaurant when a domestic dispute takes place, and things get out of hand, and Ava ends up dying due to her heinous injuries. Soon, the police, they are there. Frank is surrounded. One last-ditch effort, he locks himself and his now-dead wife into the restaurant. He is barricaded in there, but he is eventually taken in, and he would blame alcohol as the main culprit for his wife's murder. Frank would go on to say that he was so intoxicated on the hooch that he had no idea why he killed her. He had no recollection at all of hurting his wife, let alone killing her. He confesses to the murder, but repeatedly would say that the whiskey caused the murder, not him. The day of Frank Hire's execution, Frank, believe it or not, he is in wonderful spirits. He's happy. He's pleasant. He's friendly. He even thanks the priest for a wonderful Christian experience. Till the day he died, he was very adamant that whiskey was the reason why his wife was no longer living and why he is now dying. He would tell the father this. Meet me in heaven, and when you preach, father, tell the young man to leave the whiskey alone. See, I think he is using the alcohol as an excuse. It would be one thing if he was a saint of a man, if he was a wonderful husband, who never laid a finger abusively on his wife, but he was notorious and well-known for hurting her. I think he was just doing the thing he does best, assaulting his wife, and it went too far one day. Yeah, I don't think blaming coffin varnish is the way to go, my man. Just own up to the murder. Frankie old boy's June 19th, 1931 execution will be the very last public execution here at West Virginia Penitentiary. Now, they didn't intend for this to be the last public execution, but within a second, things change. 
he falls through that trap door and he's decapitated. Now, many people already thought that it was very inappropriate that these executions were made public. People were coming and watching almost like they were going to a theater or something. And so this was kind of like the last straw. Like, okay, enough's enough. Did, you know, a man had to lose his head for this to happen. In 1908, Eddie Walton is hanged for the murder of Beulah Martin. In Illinois, he marries a woman named Edith Hanna. Their marriage is a short one, and she decides to sever ties with Eddie, and she moves to Chicago. He begs Hannah to take him back. She's just kind of like, no. <laughs> okay, she's tired of his bullshit, and she refuses. She is badly mistaken if she thinks that will work, and he tracks her down to her home located on South Peoria Street, where he finds her and he shoots her. Death, it's not instantaneous, as she holds on for dear life for three long, excruciatingly painful days. I'm sure those were the three longest days of her life, which had ended ever so dramatically and abruptly, now, during the attack on his ex-wife, he also manages to attack the man who he believed to be Edith Hanna's boyfriend. This man, however, he thankfully survives. Walton, he spends some time after the murder in New Mexico, where he uses several different aliases. Then, while in Ohio, he shoots a man who will die one month later due to his injuries. He then shacks up with the woman, and one day, well, things, they get heated up, and an argument takes place. Things go from verbal to physical, and Walton claims to have been wearing heavy shoes when he was kicking this woman, and that he kicked her in the heart, which resulted in her death due to his heavy shoes. Even more so, he eventually heads over to Virginia, where he runs into Beulah Martin, where he offers her sex. And she is disgusted with him. She refuses his advances. Like, get away from me, dude. He kills her. And then he is chased by a beyond pissed off posse. He goes into a barn and kind of locks himself up in there. And he only comes out when the sheriff threatens to burn the barn down. While he murdered several people, it is his final victim that he dies for. Harry Powers, not Harry Potter, but Harry Powers, was the Lonely Hearts killer. He found his victims by placing ads in the paper, oftentimes searching for love and comfort and company. Yeah, I'm doing the whole air quotes thing. <laughs> he would promise marriage and companionship, but unfortunately his sole intent was to rob the victim of everything they had and that's including their own lives. He was finally arrested in 1931. By the time he was arrested, he had already murdered at least five people, three of them being children, but it's believed the number to be much higher than five. One fine spring day in 1932, the serial killer is hanged. And let's just say that nobody really shed a tear or mourned over this individual's death when he was swung into eternity. 
When women looked at the newspaper and would see an ad for a Cornelius Orvin Pearson, they were pleased with his kind words and promises, including a widow from Park Ridge, Illinois, Asta Eicher. She was a single mother and quite lonely since the passing of her beloved husband. The Lonely Hearts Killer, he meets the widow at her home, her safe haven, right? The home that she had lived in with her late husband. The woman arranges for somebody to watch over her three children while the new couple go on a trip to get acquainted. Well, several days later, Harry would write a letter to the woman who was watching the children saying that he is going to pick up the kiddos so they can all be together as a new family. He retrieves the children and he stops at a bank. He instructs one of the children to go withdraw money, but the child is unsuccessful and comes back without a penny. Harry Powers would later tell concerned neighbors that the mother and her children decided to go on a long extended trip to Europe. Well, you know, a couple of months later, police are investigating the missing family case. I mean, a family of four just disappears without a trace? That's weird. He had already claimed his next victim as this investigation is going on, a woman named Dorothy Lemke. During this investigation, they do recover love letters to and from Powers, and he is quickly investigated. Concerned, people come out, and one of the people is a 15-year-old boy who would share with authorities that he was instructed by Harry Powers to dig a ditch on his property. Huh, that's not suspicious. Authorities, they excavate the area, and they find not only the bodies of the widow Asta Eicher and her three sweet children, but also the body of Dorothy Lemke as well. He strangled the mother and her two daughters while the son was viciously attacked with a hammer. What a monster. Many wanted Powers to die immediately. Can't blame them one bit. On September 20th, 1931, an angry lynch mob of locals, they raided the prison in hopes of breaking him out to hang him right away. And they're met with tear gas, unfortunately. It was after this near-fatal incident that the serial killer was transferred to the penitentiary. Yes, that little raid and tear gas did not take place at West Virginia Penitentiary. He was, however, hanged there March 18th, 1932. Orville Atkins was hanged back in 1938 in the prison's oldest structure, known as the North Wagon Gate. Atkins, he was no saint. He had kidnapped and murdered a minister. He needed to die. You see, after kidnapping the minister, he had left the holy man in a mine to die. Later on, children playing in the area would come upon the missing minister's body. He had died due to the cold elements. Orville claimed that he had never meant for the man to die. But that's kind of hard to argue when he had left him in this isolated area like, uh, I don't know, hello, a mine? Come on, man, give me a break. If you didn't want him to die, it's like, release him. Bye, go home now. Orville's execution, let's just say it did not go so smoothly, as I'm sure the minister's death didn't go smoothly either. And as the noose was being placed around the doomed man's neck, an assistant to the executioner pulls the trapdoor lever prematurely, maybe, 
and the condemned man goes through. He ends up falling about 20 feet to the stone floor below. He is uh, alive still. He's rather hurt, and he's shocked, but still alive. He's quickly yanked up, dragged back up the stairs, barely being able to walk, and he is hanged one final time. Many claim to hear footsteps pacing back and forth, back and forth, where his botched execution took place. Many believe this to be Orville himself. In 1949, Bud Peterson is executed, and he will be the last person to be executed via hanging at West Virginia Penitentiary. His family, they declined picking up the body, and he was buried at the prison cemetery. You see, Bud, he had murdered a woman over a poker debt. A small crowd of less than a dozen witnesses are there for his execution. Before the trapdoor opens, he says this. Look what sin has brought me. You folks should stay on this side with Jesus. In 1949, it was decided that the electric chair would be a more humane way for execution versus hanging. And you could still find Old Sparky if you go to West Virginia Penitentiary to this very day. Nine men would meet their fate via the electric chair there. Two of them being on the same day for the same crime, a murder of a salesman. And believe it or not, a third man was sentenced to be executed that very same day, but his death sentence was commuted to life. It turns out that it's kind of hard to murder someone when at the very same time the murder was taking place, the cops were chasing him through the streets as he drove around drunk. I mean, that's an ironclad alibi if the law enforcement officers can say, hey, this is actually what happened. The electric chair was built by a prisoner and electric chair executions finally began in 1951. One past guard shared that all the names of the guards would be put in a hat and they would pick who would actually do it. And if the person refused to be part of the execution, they would lose their job. Yeah, they'd be fired immediately. In 1951, Harry Burdett and Fred Painter are the first to be executed via Old Sparky. They had teamed up and beat a man to death on a street filled with horrified people who were trying to intervene. The attack was ferocious and ever so brutal. And during the execution, it took two rounds for Fred Painter to finally die, as he was still alive after the first one. From start to finish, it took nine minutes for Painter to die, while it took three minutes for his partner in crime, Harry, to die. And in 1959, Elmer Bruner was the last to be executed by the state of West Virginia. One fateful day, Ruby Miller arrives home one early morning after spending time at church with her husband. She finds a man in the middle of burglarizing her home. She manages to grab her shotgun, but somehow he is able to take that away from her, and he ends up beating her to death. He also tried to strangle her with one of her very own stockings, which was still wrapped around her neck when her poor husband came home. And after she died, he rapes the corpse. Elmer's execution was witnessed by 18 prison officials, doctors, and newspaper reporters. 
And after receiving four separate shocks, two prison physicians finally pronounced the monster to be deceased. He died at 9.10 p.m., eight minutes after he received the very first shock. He breaks into this home, attacks a woman, strangles her, then sexually abuses the corpse. I'm very glad it took several tries for him to finally die. I hope it was very slow and painful for him. The death house, you know, it no longer exists. Once West Virginia stopped conducting executions, the inmates requested, more like kind of demanded, that it be torn down. Just isn't necessary, doesn't need to be there. It's just going to taunt them. And it was, it was torn down. Now, besides the 94 executions, 904 others drew their last breath here, making the total 998 deaths at the penitentiary. 36 of those were murders. Some of those deaths include a maintenance man who was a snitch, if you will. He would spend time spying on other inmates, and he would tell authorities and guards any kind of problems that he was seeing or hearing. He was not liked by the inmates, no shocker there, and one day he is ambushed and murdered while in the restroom. He is thought to haunt the penitentiary. His apparition has been seen here walking throughout the basement area. Another death was of a man, an inmate named Danny, who took a shiv to the eye from another fellow inmate. And then we have William. He was a bad seed. He was doing time for parasite. Yeah, he murdered his own mother and father, and then he dismembered their corpses. He was a real confrontational son of a bitch, and he enjoyed picking fights with his fellow inmates. Well, let's just say karma is a bitch, my friends. One day, one day while he is right outside of his cell, he is stabbed close to 40 times. And let's just say, like the Lonely Hearts killer, Harry Powers, nobody mourned this parent murderer's death. More like celebrated, I'm sure. His cell is extremely haunted. And on that block alone, people will hear doors opening and shutting, experiencing very uneasy feelings that come on suddenly. People will feel just negative presences around them. And some have been successful with getting photographic evidence. Gotta love, love, love that photographic evidence, my friends. Another inmate death was that of Robert Daniel Wall better known as R.D. Wall. He was a well-liked individual, considering that he was an inmate doing time at West Virginia Penitentiary for rape. He was a very popular fellow, not only with his fellow inmates, but also yeah, with the guards and the staff. He respected others. He kept to himself. He was a man on a mission to do his time without any troubles and hoping to eventually see freedom again someday even though I believe he was doing life. Things are going well until some newly transferred convicts, they stir that pot, shake the bottle, poke the bear. You get the idea. They see how well R.D. is getting along with the staff. And to them, that's just straight up taboo. That should never be happening. That shouldn't be possible. A guard and inmate being friends? Oh God, that's ludicrous. That's an insult. These outsiders are extremely offended by this. And even though they should have just minded their own business, they decide to take matters into their very own hands. 
In reality, what was really taking place was that Wall was conducting small jobs for the guards. And because of this, he was being given treats and the guards liked him. They respected him. Instead of causing chaos and trouble, he was actually doing things for the guards by working for them. And that's what he was doing. But of course, these people, these inmates, they saw it differently. They thought he was snitching, so he was being rewarded for that. And what's the saying? Snitches get stitches? Well, one fateful day in 1979, the inmates, they are up to no good, and they are hiding in the basement bathroom. They're armed to the teeth with handmade shivs, and Robert Daniel Wall, he is headed to the boiler room, where he is going to get cleaning supplies to do some work. That's it. When he is suddenly ambushed by the dangerous men. Death did not come quickly. One of the monsters cut his neck, nearly decapitating the man, while another cut off his fingertips. When the guards eventually find Wall, it was the most gruesome of sights. He was sitting propped up in a bathroom stall where the convicts had been hiding earlier on that day. And I found an article dating back Wednesday, October 10th of 1979, written by Mineral Daily News Tribune, West Virginia, and they reported this, quote, A shakedown, standard procedure when violence erupts, was carried out Tuesday at the West Virginia Penitentiary in the aftermath of two episodes that resulted in one death and three injured prisoners. R.D. Walls, 57, serving a life term for rape in Logan County, was found stabbed to death in the maintenance area Monday. A short time afterward, a melee flared in another section among inmates Boyd Tomlin, Dale McCoy, and Carl Eckhart were injured to the point that hospital treatment was necessary. A fourth prisoner, Rudolph Green, was put in a disciplinary cell. The trouble broke out as state police were at the prison investigating Wall's stabbing, unquote. Many believe the murdered man to still be around haunting the penitentiary, especially where he was killed in the basement bathroom. Women, they will feel fingers running through their hair when nobody is near or around them. Sometimes they will feel an unseen hand gently touching their face. Meanwhile, in the bathroom, both men and women have gone in and will hear footsteps and oftentimes will also hear a man whispering unintelligible words in the background. With close to 1,000 deaths that had happened here during its time as a penitentiary, it is no shocker that the West Virginia pen is considered to be excruciatingly haunted. In fact, hauntings have been taking place here since well before the Second World War. Many inmates had claimed to see a fellow inmate walking in and they are in an area that only prison staff are permitted to go to. Officials would take these accounts extremely seriously, as would any prison one would hope, and they would go do an inmate count and search the area, but they would never find anything or anybody and all the inmates they were always accounted for. Besides downstairs in the boiler room and bathroom areas, the solitary confinement area is also a place where people have experienced paranormal activity, such as being touched and experiencing cold spots. And visitors and staff alike have experienced seeing apparitions, being touched, 
experiencing phantom smells, hearing disembodied voices, including one which has been heard oftentimes saying, help, I'm trapped. They have also seen floating lights and much more. Some have also seen a shadow man wandering throughout the penitentiary. And I found something interesting on the Legends of America, West Virginia Penitentiary page. Quote, another reason this old building may be haunted is because it is said that it was built on an ancient Native American burial ground. This would not be hard to believe as the old prison was built directly across from the Grave Creek Mound, one of the largest conical type of burial mounds in the United States. Members of the Adena culture moved more than 60,000 tons of dirt to create it in about 250-150 BC. Some believe that negative energy from the deceased Native Americans infiltrated the prison, resulting in many of the paranormal events that have occurred here. Unquote. Interested in coming to the West Virginia Penitentiary sometime? They are open for tours through April to December. Just check out their page, wvpentours.com. It shows prices and different packages that are available, such as the 90-minute guided tour, which is $14. They have the photography tour, where you can just kind of take your time, and that's $100. They have an escape game package, which is $25 and a 90-minute ghost hunt for $75. Or you can do the granddaddy of them all and pay $1,100 staying overnight in this extremely haunted penitentiary. Very cool stuff. This week's special city shout-outs go to Hampton, Virginia, Huntsville, Canada, Cholula, Mexico. Ooh, I love Cholula. City of St. Peter's, Minnesota, Pohang, South Korea, and Moreau, France. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They're all spooky. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, really. You can just binge listen to your heart's fright by hitting up any of those spectacular podcast platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. Thanks, everyone, and have a great Thanksgiving, and I will see you next week.